I'm going to read from uh, today's uh, scripture on which uh, today's uh, teaching is based. It comes from Genesis chapter 3, and I'll be reading from verses 6 through 24. In Genesis chapter 3, I'll be reading from verses 6 through 24. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And this is God's word. We're taking a pause. We're taking a, a brief pause in our current series to reflect on the advent. The advent means coming. We're reflecting on the birth, the coming of Jesus Christ, our King. Uh, we do this so that we can look ahead to the return of Jesus Christ, the coming of Christ, our King. And this year, we're looking at a few of uh, the ancestors of Jesus, whom we call fathers, the fathers of Jesus, and what they teach about his promises. See, in Genesis chapter 1, God creates the universe. He creates the earth, and he creates man, and he empowers man to rule over the earth. He says, subdue the earth. But in Genesis 2, he says, do not eat from this tree or you will die. Now, in the most technologically, educationally, scientifically advanced culture in world history, why is there so much evil? 
still? Why is there uh, so much injustice? Why is there so much poverty? Why is there so much brokenness in our world? It's not because, clearly it's not because it's a lack of technology or education or science. The Bible says it's because of original sin. There are three things we're going to learn today about it. What is it? What are its consequences? What's the cure? What is sin? What are the consequences of sin? What is the cure for sin? First, we're going to look at what it is. Chapter 3, you have the serpent. The serpent represents the totality of evil, all evil. And he comes to Eve and he asks, did God really say that you must not eat from this tree? It's because you will be like God. In other words, you don't need God. Listen to me. You don't need God. You can be your own master. It was a lie. Well, in verse 6, Eve looks at this fruit and she rationalizes. It's good for food. It's pleasing to the eyes, attractive to her. And she starts to distrust God. And she starts to begin the, to trust the lie. In other words, Eve starts to say to herself, why would God withhold something good from me? It must be because he's not out for my good. Now think about this. Eve is in paradise. Eve is in paradise. Yet even paradise wasn't good enough for her. Only I know what's good for me. What a sin. Sin is putting yourself in God's place. And it affects every desire, every decision, every action. Because you distrust that God is present. You distrust that God is faithful. You distrust that God is good. And so Adam and Eve, they eat from this tree. And verse 7, they instantly realize that they are naked. Their nakedness. They experience shame for the first time. And so what they do is they take these fig leaves and they sew them together as a covering for themselves. And in verses 8 and 9, you have God now. He's walking out in the garden in the cool of the day. And he calls out, where are you? Where are you? Verse 10, Adam responds, I heard you and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Instantly, there's this distance from God. Distance from his voice, Distance from his word, distance, distance from his presence. All these things that one, at one point were life to Adam, now he's distant from it. What is sin? Sin is hiding from God. Sin is alienation from God. In that moment, you believe it's going to increase your options, increase your potential, increase your freedom, increase your joy, but instead it decreases your options and your potential and your freedom and your joy. Because sin is degrading. Why is it degrading? One, Eve starts to trust the lie. And by trusting the lie, places herself on par with the serpent. The serpent. So sin dehumanizes you. It degrades you because it dehumanizes, brings you down. But secondly, in verses 14 to 19, you notice the serpent and Adam and Eve, they're all cursed. Sin degrades because uh, you're not designed to rebel. We're not designed to disobey God. We're not designed to experience shame. We're not designed to hide, hide from God, hide from one another. So when you do, when you start to hide, when you start to walk away from people, when you start to, to, uh, 
to alienate yourself from people, you're going against your design. Sin says God is holding you back, when in reality, sin says God is holding you back from your true potential, when in reality, it's your sin, your desires, your decisions, your actions that you think are going to increase your potential, it's actually holding you back. Now, I'm not like a, not a huge car fanatic, but take a, a finely tuned German engineered car. You ever turn on that engine? And nowadays with electric cars, having an electric car, you, you can't, you don't hear the engine. When you open up that hood and you turn that engine on, you hear that, the roar of that engine. You listen to it. That engineering is so sophisticated, it just starts to hum. Why? It's in the design. Everything is coherent. Everything is integrated. That's what you see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Creation, integrated, so harmonious. God says after every day, this is good. This is so good. This is so deeply satisfying. That's what he says. But imagine you take this rock and throw it right into the core of that engine. What happens? All of a sudden, everything starts to clank and clash. It might still run, but there's brokenness and there's incoherence. Where it was once integrated, there's now disintegration. In verse 24, Adam and Eve are equally outcast. Why? Because they're going against God's design. Day after day, God creates. That's what you see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Day after day, he's creating. And after each day, he looks at what he creates and he says, it is good. Day two, he creates. He says, it's good. Day three, he creates. It's good. At one point, you get to the end of the week. He looks at everything he's created. He says, it is very good. In other words, I'm deeply satisfied with what I've created. So when you go against God's design, sin is not so much breaking God's rules. So much, it is, so much as it is really taking that which is deeply satisfying and coherent and integrated, and you're really breaking his heart. That's the first point. What are the consequences? Well, the consequence in Genesis chapter 3 is the curse. In verse 8, God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, he walked with Adam. He walked with Eve. It's an Old Testament idiom, meaning that he constantly is desiring and seeking intimacy with his people. The garden is eerily empty that day because Adam and Eve had rebelled against God and they hid. God is out in the open. Adam and Eve, they're covered up. They're closed. God desires intimacy. He desires relationship. Adam and Eve, they're hiding. They're alienated. One of the consequences of sin is, you see it in verse 7, their shame. Adam and Eve, they realize that they're naked. Nakedness is an Old Testament idiom for shame. What do they do? They take these fig leaves and they sew it together. They cover themselves with these fig leaves. In other words, why do we boast? Why do we, why are we constantly working? to build, and to accomplish things? Why are we so competitive with one another? Why do we care so much about our status, our pedigrees, our education, our degrees, 
Why do we care so much about our looks, our reputations? It's because we're always resorting to insufficient means of covering ourselves, that deep-rooted nakedness, that deep-rooted inadequacy that comes as a result of our shame, a deep-rooted shame. We don't even realize it's there. It's so deeply rooted because of our sin. I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, I didn't make up the story. I didn't come up with the story. Jean-Paul Sartre, famous philosopher, he tells a story. He writes a story about a keyhole. And he says he comes across this keyhole, and he looks through this keyhole, and there he sees a woman, beautiful woman, who starts to take off her clothes. Now, Sartre is enamored. He's captivated. He stares into that keyhole because there's a sense of power that he has because he gets to look through that keyhole. She has no idea, and he gets to see all, as she's undressing, he gets to see all of her perfections and all of her imperfections. And all of a sudden, Sartre writes that something fell over him because as he looked behind him, there was another keyhole. The world says, that's why you got to build. That's why you got to cover up. That's why you have to only emphasize, never show weakness. Always cover up. Never, never be caught. You know, never get caught in a moment of weakness. Emphasize your gifts and your strengths. When we were designed to be open and vulnerable and dependent. In Exodus chapter 32, You have the Israelites, God's people. They're waiting for Moses to come down from this mountain. Moses is bringing down the law from God. And they get impatient. They're waiting. And they fall into idolatry. And in the midst of that idolatry, Moses, upon coming down, he realizes, maybe I can make an atonement for my people, for God's people. And so he goes to God, and God on one hand, so dismayed by the idolatry of his people. But on the other hand, he tells them, he says to Moses, tell them to take off their ornaments. What he's saying is, I see all of you. Stop trying to cover yourselves to make yourself look more attractive. It is a cosmic thing to do that, to be so focused on the externals. Because deep inside, there's this deeply rooted insecurity and inadequacy that makes you desire to cover over yourselves with goodness. A lot of us grew up in the church, and it's your goodness that you use as a cover-up over the deep-rooted shame. You're still trying to get God's attention and get, receive God's favor on your own, apart from God. And God is saying, I see you. Take off your ornaments. You can't earn my favor. You're not going to earn my love. As a result, because of the shame, there's a second consequence, alienation. I'm going to start like this. Human beings are radically relational people. Why? Because God by nature, God by nature, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, if you believe in a Trinitarian God, you believe that God, by nature, he didn't, just, he didn't just desire community. 
God by nature is intimate community, the most intimate community. And since we have been created, we've been built in God's image, we're built desiring intimacy. We're built desiring to be in a relationship. But in verse 9, God says, where are you? In other words, where there was relational integrity, relational faithfulness, now there's a dissonance. Where there was consonance, now there's dissonance. And in verse 10, Adam responds, I was naked and so I hid. Before I used to walk with you, before it was your voice that I heard, now your voice scares me. He says, I heard your voice and I was afraid, so I hid. In verse 11, God asks, who told you that you were naked? In other words, what voice are you now listening to? Did you eat from this tree? And Adam responds and he says, the woman you put here, she made me do it. In other words, this is your fault. It's not my fault. You put that woman there. She made me do it. Eve says, that serpent, he made me do it. Sin, alienation from God, it degrades, it exposes your nakedness. You experience as a result this deep-rooted shame because you realize now you were always vulnerable, but now you realize you're vulnerable and you realize how dangerous the world is and you realize you have no covering. That's why we're always so defensive and self-justifying and self-absorbed. We're constantly shifting blame, shifting blame on other people. First, sin distances you from God, but always, always that leads to distancing yourself from other people. An alienation from God leads to an alienation from others. There are broken relationships, even in this room. There are broken relationships. Yes, you may have been betrayed. Yes, you may have been hurt. But a lot of broken relationships begin with your friends coming to you and saying, you have a problem. And we just cannot accept the truth about ourselves. Adam, in a sense, is saying, this is her fault. This is your fault. Send her to die. You should die. And for centuries since then, mankind, humankind, has been trying to eradicate themselves from God. Scholars and commentators at one point have said that we will one day outgrow the concept of God. And yet today, many years after postmodernism, do you know that people are actually coming back to the church? Because as I said earlier, with all this technology and science and empiricism, we thought we would get rid of God only to find that the same problems that have plagued us back then are still plaguing us today. And that it must not be as a result, it must not be because we lack science and technology and empiricism. That there must be deeper things that we must, we, we've eradicated from our lives that we may need to go back to because we're losing ourselves, we're losing society, we're losing culture. Adam is saying, send her to die. She's the problem. You're the problem. This is your fault. I'm still okay. So rather than coming clean, which requires us to be vulnerable and naked, 
we're always fighting to come out clean, and we do that at the cost of other people. At the root of every broken relationship, at the root of every broken family, at the root of every racial tension, at the root of every lie, at the root of every bigotry, at the root of all chauvinism, there is an alienation that has been wrought by sin. So if you're constantly criticizing other people and not confessing, if you're constantly gossiping and hurting other people but not repenting, you're really just living out the selfish, proud, self-absorbed, self-justifying, alienating nature of sin that has been a part of our spiritual DNA since the Garden of Eden. Now, the third consequence is idolatry. Now, because we're alienated from God, and yet we've been built for intimacy, God by nature is community. We've been created in his image. And so we've been created for intimacy. We've been created for relationship. Now, because we've lost the Father, because we've lost God, we've lost his embrace, we're looking for the embrace of other people. Now we're pouring that weight of intimacy on other people. That's why we so desperately want to be in relationships. That's why we so desperately, you know, we just can't stand being alone. We can't stand being lonely. But no earthly relationship is ever going to be what you can only have with God because God is so faithful, perfectly good, perfectly loving, perfectly forgiving. But because there's this distance from God, now we're constantly trying to replace God, replace that intimacy with Rather than going back and seeking intimacy with God, We run from God, we hide from God, we alienate ourselves from God, and yet we alienate ourselves from one another, and yet we want intimacy. We want to replace God with that intimacy with other people. You know why? Because we're still trying to cover over that shame. Because if I can be in that relationship, then I'll be okay. Then I've got a covering. We're driven by that. We're driven by our relationships. And what makes a relationship good, what makes a relationship perfect, We break these relationships, don't we? We hurt one another. We're constantly hurting each other. Fourth, that brokenness, that suffering. In Genesis chapter 1, there's family, there's relationships, there's work, there's rest. All three of these things existed in the garden. But once we chose to listen to other voices apart from God, once we chose to rebel Go our own way apart from God. We see the curse. That curse affects family. Verse 16, there will be great pains in childbearing now. Now, every time you bear children, that pain is going to be just a, the pain doesn't end there. The pain begins there because now family will be broken. In verses 17 to 19, it's going to affect your work. The ground, God curses the ground. That's why, number one, that's why we have natural disasters. It's why we have environmental brokenness. It's why we have disease. I mean, we understand the impact of disease. But it's also why our work and our careers and our jobs are broken. We're all, some of you out there, you're just looking for the perfect job, you tell yourself. And you don't realize that jobs by nature are broken. Careers by nature are broken. We so much desire, I mean, we're at war with our careers. And yet, we need our careers because our careers give us significance and meaning. It's why we're often slaves to our work because we just need to be fruitful. We need to produce. We want prosperity. 
But we want those things without God because we want those things to cover over our shame because if my job goes well, if I have wealth, if I build, if I'm accomplished, people will accept me. I will feel acceptable. I will feel approvable. That promotion, it's not, you know, one of my favorite movies is this movie called Moneyball. And uh, you have Billy Bean, who is the general manager of the Oakland Athletics, the A's, my baseball team. And he gets an offer by the Boston Red Sox, and he's written on a piece of paper. And they say, did you, and his friend, his partner says, you know, did, did he make you an offer? He slides that paper over. He looks at the offer and goes, this will make you the wealthiest general manager in the history of this sport. It's not what the money, it's not about the money. It's about what that money represents. It represents that you made it, he says. We so desperately want to prosper and be fruitful. But the ground is cursed. God says, through painful toil, you will work this ground. And there will only be thorns and thistles. That means no matter how hard you work, there will be thorns. No matter how hard you work, there will be failure and loss and fruitlessness and pain. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Lastly, there's death. Verses 23 to 24, God places an angel with a flaming sword flashing back and forth. Angels represent the royal presence of God, access to God. But this angel has a flaming sword, and he's flashing back and forth at the entrance to the garden. That means that you don't have access. You've been banished. You've been cast out. You are unrighteous. Righteousness means approval. You are unrighteous. You are not approved. It's why we're constantly working for approval. It's why we're constantly working to build our reputations. It's why we're constantly trying. We identify a group of people that we believe are the right crowd, the right people, the right people to get to know, and we constantly are working to get in with those people. You know what we're doing? We're trying to get back in the garden. We're trying to get back in the garden on our own without God. But that angel with the sword represents that you will die trying to get in. You've sought to increase your options and potential and freedom and your joy, and you sought to do that without God. And as a result, now you're out. You will die trying to get back in on your own. The result is shame and alienation and idolatry and suffering and death. What's the cure? Last point, what's the cure? Notice, God doesn't smite. He doesn't destroy Adam and Eve. Look at the grace of God. I mean, he could have, but he doesn't. He pursues Adam and Eve. He starts by just asking questions. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the street? I mean, this is God. Surely he knows all of the answers to these questions. Why is he asking these questions? He's counseling Adam. He's counseling Eve. He's teaching them. He wants them to know why. He wants them to take responsibility. He wants them to own their sin. But he's constantly pursuing, seeking intimacy, asking questions, counseling, and teaching. Notice, he doesn't ask the serpent any questions. 
just the people that he loves. But not only does he pursue them, he also provides for them. He provides for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had these fig leaves. They look ridiculous, insufficient covering. But in verse 21, God himself makes garments out of animal skin, and he covers them. And you have to think about this. Who's the one that got betrayed here? God was betrayed. God has been hurt. Adam and Eve had taken this beautiful, perfect creation that God worked with his own hands, and they soiled it. They betrayed him. They rebelled against him. His voice was all they needed. They abandoned his voice and followed a lie. They traded in him. And yet, God pursues them. God counsels them. God provides for them. Look at the love of God. Look at the wisdom of God. God is saying, if I don't provide for Adam, I mean, he is so vulnerable right now. He's on his own. What he has is insufficient. He will die. He will pay the price. That may be justice. But if I want Adam to live, then I have to provide. God is betrayed. God was hurt. God was rebelled against. And yet, I have to provide, he says. That means that I have to swallow the poison of betrayal by myself. I have to die. I have to pay the price. And he does. And he does. This is a foreshadowing. You see it? This is a foreshadowing how. In order for Adam and Eve to be covered over sufficiently, blood has to be spilt. And so God pursues Adam and Eve and he provides for Adam and Eve. And in verses 14 to 15, he promises Adam and Eve. The one time that God speaks to the serpent, he makes a promise. And the promise is, I'm going to end you once and for all. One day, the son of the woman will crush your head. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. I will end the serpent forever. I will end the evil forever. He says, one day you, the serpent, you may strike the heel of the woman's son, her seed, her descendant, but he will crush your head. He will end you once and for all. This is what we call the proto-euangelion, the prototype of the gospel, the prototype of the good news, the prototype of the promise, which is this. One day, a descendant of Eve will come and crush the head of all sin, all evil, all injustice, all oppression, all disease, all death forever, but at his cost, he will be mortally wounded. God tells Adam to obey him regarding the tree, but Adam rebelled and he failed. And so in verse 24, Adam is driven east of Edom. East is an Old Testament idiom for expulsion, distance from God. And yet, Adam receives a promise. Adam becomes a father of the one who will crush evil forever. And so even though he is cursed, he lives 
because of this promise. Adam is what we call the federal head, the federal representative of all of mankind. In other words, if we were, if the entire world throughout all the generations were to take a vote to use one man to represent them at that time, it would have been Adam. There is no one more perfect than Adam. There is no one more obedient than Adam. And yet, Adam failed. And because Adam, see, if Adam su- succeeded, we would have all succeeded. He would have been our representative. But because Adam failed, it's almost like spiritual DNA that has been passed down. We all failed. And yet because of the promise, centuries later, there was a second Adam, a descendant of this woman. God told Jesus to obey him regarding the tree, the cross. And so at Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, another garden, there is Jesus. There he could have forsaken God. There he could have rebelled against God. And yet in that garden, he says, Father, take this cup from me. The cup that he was referring to is the cup of God's wrath, which was going to be poured out on him as a penalty for our sins on the cross. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about obedience to the tree. And yet Jesus says, not my will, yours be done. God's voice is still ever-present. He doesn't hide. He says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. I'm weak and I'm vulnerable and I'm utterly dependent on you and I will obey. And he obeys. And so Jesus Christ is crucified outside Jerusalem. You know what that means? He's literally driven out of the city. He carries his own cross out of the city. He's expelled. He's rejected. Why? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this. God made him, Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the gospel in one verse. In other words, Jesus Christ became sin. Jesus Christ became the curse and he was crushed. Adam sinned. Adam was cursed and yet he lived. Jesus Christ is sinless, completely obedient, and yet he takes on the curse. He becomes the curse, and he dies. Why? So that we might become the righteousness. We might have the approval of God. Jesus had to be abandoned. We are justified in Christ. Jesus Christ took the penalty of sin for us, And so he was cast out. He was rejected so that we would be brought in. Access. If sin is man taking the place of God, substituting himself, uh, substituting God with himself, then the gospel is God taking the place of man, substituting man with himself. Jesus would take the penalty for our sins. Jesus was cast out so we would be brought in so that we would have the love and acceptance of God. The tree is an Old Testament idiom for the curse. So Jesus Christ gets the cross. That's why it had to be the tree. It had to be the cross. He gets the curse. And on the cross, what do you see? You see Jesus, he's laboring and he's working. And as he's laboring and sweating and working, It's painful toil. He not only gets the thorns, the fruitlessness, he gets a crown of thorns. 
And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, now I'm experiencing the ultimate shame and the ultimate nakedness, the ultimate brokenness, the ultimate alienation from God, the ultimate separation from God. And I'm enduring the ultimate suffering, the ultimate brokenness. Whereas my life was completely integrated with God, now I am experiencing the ultimate disintegration. I'm falling apart because I'm separated from the Father. I've lost all meaning. I'm absorbing the full curse, and then he died. Remember the sword? Jesus Christ goes under the sword. The only that we, we, that we could enter back into the presence of God is to go under the sword. Jesus goes under the sword so we can pass through. Isaiah 53 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced for our sin. Why? The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Jesus experienced the shame. He was stripped naked, placed on the cross, that nothing would cover him, fully vulnerable to the wrath of God. Not even a piece of clothing was going to separate, take the hit. He took it in full. He bore it in full on the cross for us. Romans chapter 4 said, blessed are they whose sins are covered. And so Jesus' blood is the perfect, the perfect covering for us. To the degree that you believe this, to the degree that you trust this, you don't need to hide. It's not that you stop working. Work existed before sin. But your work is not something that you're just constantly going to use to, to bring meaning to yourself, to cover over your shame or your inadequacy so you can boast about who you are, what you've accomplished. You no longer need to hide. You no longer need to cover. When people approach you about your inadequacies, about things that you've done wrong, you don't need to hide. You don't need to be defensive because Jesus Christ is your ultimate defense and he has taken on the full wrath of God, the only attack the only attack, the only accusation that will ultimately kill you, truly ruin you, Jesus took it on the cross himself. You don't need to hide and cover yourself with your good resume or your good looks, your pedigree, or, or by gossiping about other people to expose their nakedness or their shame. You don't need to, to slave and labor, accomplish things to make yourself feel good about yourself, to get a sense of worth. There are many of us in the church who grew up using your goodness to cover over your shame. You're still trying to do it apart from God. You're actually using it as a way to avoid God. You know it because oh, those people, they're not likable people. They're judgmental, constantly comparing themselves with other people. Oh, they gossip. No one gossips like people in the church. Plunge yourself into the sacrificial blood of Jesus. That's an end to your shame. It's an end to your guilt. It's an end to blame shifting. It's an end to your defensiveness. It's an end to your pride. It's an end to the alienation. It's an end to bigotry. It's an end to chauvinism. It's an end to idolatry. It's an end to your approval seeking. It's an end to your desire. You're just craving your need for a relationship over and over despite what your friends say, despite what you know deep inside. It's an end to the only suffering that can truly end you because it's an end to sin. 
Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. As we come to the table, it's a season of thanksgiving. It's a season of giving. Let's reflect on the amazing gift of the coming of Jesus for us. Let's pray.